not only is somebody always doing something stupid somewhere within the federal government, but there is this concerted effort by a number of people to fight back. They don't want exposure. They don't want accountability. And I tell the real life stories about how we fought this machine. Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord. Hey, it's Mikey from the Goonies. That was a million dollars, over a million dollars lost. A podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. I'm Brian Lord, and on the show today, we have former Congressman Jason Chaffetz, as he shares the stories behind his new book, The Deep State, why he slept on a cot in his office, and his experience working at Harvard. Last week, we celebrated the 25th anniversary of Rudy with a man behind the story, and this week we dive a little into politics with a special interview from our political agent, Jordan Smallwood. Here's his interview with Jason Chaffetz. I'm here with TV commentator, author, husband and father, former Congressman Jason Chaffetz. Jason, thanks for being with us. Jordan, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Let's dive right in. Uh, What initially got you interested in politics? You know, I never thought I would be in politics. I I grew up uh, in sports. I was in the local business community. Uh, for 16 years, but my mother had passed away from cancer and uh, really obviously touched my heart. And especially in in the state of Utah, the Huntsman family started the Huntsman Cancer Institute the same year that my mother passed away. Well, fast forward to 2003, um, when John Huntsman Jr. was maybe going to run for governor, I thought, you know what, if they're going to fight cancer, I can help them put up a few yard signs. And it really kind of changed my life because I ended up not only Joining the campaign, I was going to volunteer, then I got hired. Next thing you know, I'm chief of staff. And then once I was there, I saw up close and personal who was doing what and how. And I thought, maybe I'll run. And uh, it changed the course of my life, uh, all for the better. You've campaigned yourself. You've uh, campaigned on behalf of um, uh, Governor Huntsman. Tell us what the the most difficult part of campaigning is. Well, it's more difficult to campaign for somebody else because you got to get your word track just right and you're representing somebody. When you're your own candidate, it's it's um, it's a fascinating experience because you have to learn the rural issues. You've got to learn the, the national issues. You've got to dive in. And in a congressional district, there's some 800,000 people that you're going to represent. So um, it was a fascinating experience and I loved it and thrived in it and got to Congress and was fortunate enough to, to serve for eight and a half years, including the chairman of the oversight committee. While you were in Congress, uh, it was well known that you slept on a cot in your office for, yeah. for a time. What was your motivation behind that? Tell us a little bit about what, what caused you to do it that. It was the economic reality that I needed to save some money for my family. So every member's office has a sink and it has a, has a loo, has a toilet, um, but to save money for the Chaffetz family, um, I just threw down a cot and slept in my office. It ends up there are other members that uh, do this as well. You know, I, I spent about 1,500 nights away from my family, and I think that was the most difficult part of it. But my wife like, would love to, if she was here, she would tell you, well, I know the cot couldn't have been too comfortable, but I didn't want them to be too comfortable. I wanted them to come home, not get too comfy in Washington, D.C. That was very true. And do you feel like uh, sleeping on a cot and, and saving money in this way sent a positive message to the, the people who had voted you into office? Yeah, it, it was a good reminder to me personally not to get too comfortable, as my wife wanted it to be. 
But um, it ended up that a constituents I represented uh, loved it. Um, in fact, the cot probably got more pictures with visitors than anything else in D.C. They would take, come and take pictures of the cot. Um, but it was symbolic of the idea that I was going there to serve and that I was coming home, that I wasn't living high on the hog and that I was just there to ingratiate, you know, myself and my bank account and everything else. D.C. is very expensive and I didn't have the financial wherewithal as some of the other members did to go out and get some big, fancy, multi-million dollar house. So uh, it, it was a good fit for me. You mentioned that you were uh, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee and uh in that position, you took on the IRS, the EPA, the DOJ, Department of State. Talk to us about your experience as chairman, uh, especially during the end of the Obama era and uh, beginning of Trump presidency. Well, it was a tremendous honor. It's a committee that was founded in 1814. And this idea of checks and balances on the federal government, uh, this is the tip of the spear. So we, we did a lot of investigations, a lot of them in a very bipartisan way. Other ones uh, were a little bit more contentious, but that is who we are as a people. We are open, we are transparent, and we are self-critical. Um, but it was a tremendous honor to do that. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we I think, made a real difference. And if you look at checks and balances and you care about it, this is how we do it. And it's not for everybody, but I kind of thrived in it. I really did enjoy it. So you left office and um, worked on a couple different projects. You're, you're currently in kind of that season now. For a, for a, a season after office, though, you uh, were a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. Tell me a little bit about that and, uh, and who the most interesting person you met while you were there. Well, Harvard invited me to come in and they wanted a well-rounded group. I give them a lot of credit for having I, Secretary Jules, Secretary of Interior for the Obama administration was there. Um, and it's like the Star Wars bar of politics at Harvard because it's amazing who walks in that door. But it was a really uh, fascinating experience to interact with students, have that dialogue, and really kind of give back and share the experience that I have. And it's part of, I thought, passing on the baton. So I did it for a, a semester there. Um, it was a great experience. They would never let me in as a student, but of course they'll let me help teach and do that sort of thing. So I had a good time and I think I was a good fit for them. So your book is out this week. Congratulations on uh, on a successful book launch. I hear that uh, your books made it on what? Li how many lists? Uh, uh, we're, I mean, we're you know we're literally just launched. Um, we're day two or so. I think we at least on the first day we got to number five on the overall list of uh, books sold at Amazon. We'll be on a lot of the bestseller lists, and I'm thrilled about that. Obviously, it's called the Deep State. Uh, I spent eight and a half years in Congress, and I put eight and a half months uh, putting this book together. And, you know, a lot of questions about the deep state. Is it real? Is it tin foil hat, you know, conspiracy to spirit, conspiracy theory stuff? I, really, my experience, I didn't know what it was when I went into Congress, but I left knowing that it was very real. Not only is somebody always doing something stupid somewhere within the federal government, but there is this concerted effort by a number of people to fight back. They don't want exposure. They don't want accountability. They don't like a disruptive president like a Donald Trump. Um, they want to be left to their own device. They want more power, more control. And I tell the real life stories about how we fought this machine that is very active out there, brazen in their, uh, in their approach. And we tell stories, everything from Benghazi to the IRS, to the DEA, to the Secret Service, to the EPA, 
I mean, it's just chock full of real life stories. And then one thing I'm really proud about is how do we solve it? Like, what should we do? And it's going to take a bipartisan effort. And this is not just Republican versus Democrat or vice versa. These are institutional things that we as the American people, I think we need to do to have a more accountable government, a government that's better functioning, um, but that will also progress in this idea that we are supposed to have three co-equal branches of government. And, and to the reader out there who may not be interested necessarily in politics or getting into the uh, nitty gritty of government, why is this important for somebody to read? Well, if you think about it, our government's going to spend $4 trillion. So think about it. If you, you know, It's hard to get your mind around how much money that is. But if you spend a million dollars a day every day, it would take you almost 3,000 years to get to $1 trillion. Well, we spend $1 trillion of your money. The, the government's money is your money. We spend $1 trillion every three months. And so you may not care about the nitty gritty of politics and all that. But every time you get a check, every time you're earning things, government's pulling a huge portion out there. And I, I think that's what's, you know, how do we do that better and make it more accountable and more responsive to what government is supposed to do? Because there is a proper role of government, but we don't need as much government as we have. And it, if we're going to do it, we better do it right. In the book, you highlight uh, the deep state's tactics. You illuminate the problems. You talked about this earlier. You uh, c- come up with a couple solutions. Talk to us. Don't don't give anything away, but talk to us a little bit about maybe uh, one of the solutions or ideas you have on, on the back end of this. Well, uh, the budget process is really screwed up, and it doesn't get too wonky here. But in 1974, they came up with a budget process um, where you're supposed to be able to come to the floor and and offer amendments. Problem is since 1974, it's only worked one time. And so how does this, how does this massive amount of money get spent? That's one of the solutions we talk about is how do we fix that? Because that's how we can fix the debt and the deficit, but it's also how we can fix the process, which ultimately leads to how we feed the federal government. That is but one small item that probably takes a page and a half. I don't want people to think they're gonna get lost in this sea of numbers. But we go through a whole series of those things. Uh, contempt power. You know, if somebody's going to ignore a subpoena or be held in contempt of Congress, what are we going to do about that? It ends up that they used to have a house jail. Well, that's an interesting concept. That'll get your mind spinning. <laughs> that is fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the process of writing the book. Did you enjoy this? Was it more difficult than you expected? Um, I was a rookie, but I was very fortunate with HarperCollins to have a really good publisher who walked me through this process. And it literally started with one sentence and then an outline and then uh, one sentence for each chapter. And we built that into a paragraph. And then I would cut loose and I did a lot of voice to text. And then I'd go back and rewrite it. So I'd crank out maybe 15 or 20 pages with my voice. And then I'd step back for two or three days and I'd come back and I'd have to retype it all out. And then we went through the editing process. And so that's why it takes eight and a half months. But, um, and they would challenge me and ask me things. Like I was recounting a time that I was in Libya and the the editor came back and said, I want to know how it smells. And I thought, what are you talking about? And they, and I, I digested that a little bit and it sparked some memories and some thoughts so that you can illuminate it for the reader or the listener. If you download it and listen to it on, on a, Audible or something like that. 
so that they could actually kind of be there as best I can describe it. And, um, and I think it turned out pretty well. I hope people like it. Next week, we learn about television journalism with Joan London. So make sure to subscribe to get that episode as soon as it releases. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. To learn more, go to beyondspeak.com because adding the ING was too expensive. For this episode of the Beyond Speaking podcast, your technical director, producer, and head Steelers fan was Eric Woody. Your creative director and part-time leprechaun was Travis Franklin. Brian Lord, your host, executive producer, and specialist in speaking about himself in the third person. Additional thanks to special consultant and the pride of St. Paul, Lauren D. of D. & Associates. Thank you to the incredible voice talents of the muy profundo Robert Borges. Finally, thanks to the premier founder, Dwayne Ward, CEO Sean Hanks, and CIO Chris Yount, simply because you need to thank powerful people. If you've listened this far, you clearly have nothing better to do, so why not continue on and listen to the next Beyond Speaking podcast.